If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. To say I'm one beer in, I'm going to have to restrain myself from making fun of Lex because he's officially a <laughs> friend. Podcast beef, man. That's that's yeah. the way you grow the, the podcast. You, <laughs> yeah, you create beef and then they come on your podcast to deal yeah. with the beef. We should be creating enemies constantly. I, well, I just posted a, a tweet in MOZ by Fisted by Foucault, right? Which you can't admit to following, but obviously it's funny. And he's like, Lex Friedman sits down to do an interview with a gas stove. <laughs> posted on YouTube, 13 billion listens. <laughs> And you look at the reply, guys, it's like Lex sits there and focuses as if he's proving, you know, the Riemann hypothesis and comes out with a question like, what is it like to be a guest stove? <laughs> right? That's what it should. <laughs> with the fucking guest stove. Welcome to another episode of Moment of Zen. This episode is with our friends Arthur and Sharon Krishnan, both longtime Silicon Valley executives and investors. Here's the deal. Some episodes are going to be deep dives into tech and business. Some are going to be debates on culture and politics. This one's mostly the latter. You're basically a fly in the wall of our group chat. If you liked the AI debate last week, definitely check out a new AI podcast I just launched with Nathan LeBenz called The Cognitive Revolution. It's in the show notes. In this show, we'll be discussing AI and crypto again the next couple of episodes. In general, let us know in the comments what topics you want us to talk about as we're still experimenting and figuring out what the show should be. With that, we have a fun one for you this week. Let's get to the show. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Shreya Marthi, uh, we wanted to bring you on because we've been uh, all chatting together uh, over the last few years uh, and making sense of, of what's happening uh, in this world. You're, you're denying it already? No <laughs> <laughs> comment. Yeah, no comment. And one of the debates we've been having on the show and in the group chat is, is this institutionalist versus brokenist debate. Uh, can the institutions that have been uh, failing us or been struggling, can they be reformed or do we need to build new ones? And um, sure, I see you as someone who kind of straddles both of those worlds where you um, have a lot of friends in, in, in these institutions and you're sympathetic to them and you uh, defend them at times. Uh, but then you're also, you know, you're working the front lines of, of A16Z crypto and, and trying to re- build new ones like, like, like Farcaster. I'm, I'm curious where you net out on this institutionalist versus brokenness debate and how perhaps you've evolved uh, over time. 
Uh, first of all, I- I'm actually not going to answer that question. I'm going to say thank you for having us on the show, <laughs> right? And I'm, you know, big fan for, has it been six episodes? Yes. <laughs> okay, seven episodes so far. Is Auntie the first female guest you had? Yes. Holy shit, shame on you. <laughs> We're just well, doing a part, guys. I mean, well, I just like bumped up your minority ratio by w- yeah. quite a bit. Unfortunately, you're not going to have the right views and the people are going to say it's not going to count. Oh, oh, we, 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 <laughs> will, we will see. Uh, uh, but yeah, you know, I think yeah, Auntie's checking all the boxes here. I know. So it's, it's just a low bar. The low bar for diversity. Arthi, have you always been more based than Shuram, or how, how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, again, it's a low bar here. Shuram's the least based person you would meet pretty much on the street at any given point in time. That's a that's a very good description of Shuram. <laughs> <laughs> like okay. pick any like random hundred people, Shuram will be the least based yeah. person. Uh, so I just want to say, for the record, and I hope this gets clipped out later, that I don't endorse anyone's opinion that I'm, you know, surrounded by, especially her. I just want to say that. Except maybe Dan, who I actually work with professionally. So Dan, love you. Thank you for working with me. But everyone else, I have no idea what he's saying and I don't endorse anything. But yes, okay. yes. Arthi is definitely, I would say, over the years. Uh, she over is, the years. Over the years. So we've known each other for 20, 20, 20 years this year. And uh, we've been together, you know, uh, we started dating in 2005 and uh, married in 2010. And she's always had much more controversial opinions than I've had. She's always been much more hardcore than I've been. Honest. And uh oh, well let the jury judge that. Uh <laughs> and uh, uh and, uh, here's a fun story. And let's you know in our early years, he was famous for storming out of meetings at Microsoft where like about like 15, 20 minutes in, she'd be like, Well, can I swear on this show? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, about 15, 20 minutes in, she'd be like, you just say, fuck this shit, slap her laptop and walk out. Right, and this was a consistent thing. And Microsoft HR actually once pulled her, and then she was like, "They were like, you can't do that. Why not? It worked. Like we ship stuff. Like you know, I think at the end of the day, it's like have, we've all been in those meetings where we know in the first few minutes how the rest of the meeting's gonna go, and you're like, well, might as well like cut my losses and just go. And and Shreyam wouldn't do that. He's always like the peacekeeper, right? Like he has to be like. Thank you for coming. Before we start, let me make you feel even happier about being in this useless meeting. And then there's like a lot of that. And so just, yeah, it's uh, efficient. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know where we're going with this. But I'll say over the years, uh, uh, you know, I think one of the other themes is like, how where do we disagree? There have been many times where we'd be talking about, say, a particular person, and Arthi would say, that person is dead to me forever. <laughs> uh, I don't know. They have their redeeming qualities. And, you know, but maybe you're, you're, bad... you're eventually come around to it. You're maybe. a cri- Christian figure. You're a Christian figure. Maybe. You maybe. forgive people. Yeah. Antonio, yeah. if Shiram's not going to answer, what do you answer for him, perhaps? Like, where, where does he net out on, on this side? Um, slash, like, what, what are the, some of the core disagreements that, that you say ha- have with Shiram? Everything. Everything, right? From <laughs> whether, uh, you know, whether Kanye is actually a genius or not, uh, whether... A man should actually own three thousand pairs of sneakers <laughs> and let that be known publicly. I mean, what 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 do we agree on? I think it might be a shorter way to the truth here. Yeah. Well, I, I, I know what Antonio actually, and I, I think there is one thing we agree on: Jews and Indians have more in common. Oh, I I, I didn't hear that comment. No, okay. uh, but uh, uh, the 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 which is in Antonio's infamous notorious book. Uh, it, uh, I I actually think the ad tech part of the book, which is the only part I'll endorse. Uh, exactly well written and you know I often point people to it as if you want to understand the world of ad tech that particular chapter and maybe stop literally 
like a decade of knowing Antonio, that's the one thing your people agree yeah. on. And maybe stop reading after the chapter. I don't know. That <laughs> you, I think you guys both like watches. True. True. That is, that is true. That is true. <laughs> the, the most recent uh, is agree. Oh, we think attribute. <laughs> we both think attribution is important. And attribution that is, is the key to happy level. Actually. That is, you want to explain that, Antonio, actually? For, uh, what, is, what does it mean? Yeah, so attribution is a wonky term. I literally have to pitch this 10 times a day now. It's actually my job uh, on the Web3 side. Basically, what attribution means is who did what where and and who and who got them there is basically what it is. It is like the causal capital T truth. Let me sketch out a very simple example, which is actually part of the fundraising deck that you say, intro, um, which is like somebody tweet, Cal actually, I posted a thing, a picture of my mountain bike, right? Cal time times and saying, oh, cool bike. Where'd that bike come from? Jason Calacanis actually bought a mountain bike, right? Like, then who takes credit for that? It turns out Google probably took credit for it because he went and like Googled whatever bicycle I mentioned and it navigationally got him to the site. He bought the $8,000 thing and they get basically the acquisition cost of that thing. And so the lesson here is that causal T truth is how this is all threaded together, right? Like the internet is a very labyrinthine process. You watch a Rogan video, you watch a YouTube thing, you engage with a tweet, you watch this podcast, you then go do a thing. Who takes credit for it? And it's also often very wrong, but in ways that are important. So in this case, Part of Google's like trillion dollar market cap is due to the fact that they decide what that capital T truth is. If you ask the question, I don't know, you're probably not going to come on the record on this because you're too diplomatic. Why didn't Twitter, why isn't Twitter worth more given the fact that it actually causes so many things to happen in the world, whether somebody was in, winning a presidential race or diplomatic tensions to arise between Israel and Iran? It's because there wasn't a true attribution system that actually made it such that you could track like this tweet led to this massive political process to happen. If there was someone to actually connect those two, Twitter would be worth a lot more than it is today. And that's why I think attribution is so important, and it will be important in Web3 crypto, because it like it determines like causality. <laughs> like imagine you went through life not knowing who caused the things that happened in your life, you'd go crazy. And that's how the internet works through that attribution. Yeah, I think it's so spot on. I think anyone who works in ads was nodding away at this because, you know, over the last 10 years, that lesson was lesson has driven into you. Like you mentioned Google. Like one of the real advantages Google had was uh, you know, you could do anything on the internet, you could browse a lot of social media. But when you basically said, Hey, find me flights to Hawaii, you went and searched on Google. And then Google could basically say, hey, you know what? Well, we take the credit for it. Even though you might have seen a billboard, your friend could have told you something. And, uh, and, and I think Antonio is spot on about, you know, um, you know, things upper in the funnel like Twitter and other social media. But I actually think it's actually true for a lot of other parts of life also, where, you know, who takes credit? What led to something else happening? Don't try to be such a profound question in so many other things. So, yeah, attribution is the secret to life. I'm trying to meme it as Sriram's love, but I'm not sure it's working. So watch is an attribution. There you go. And, yeah. On that note of, of kind of credit, I, I think one thing, sure, you, you have really interesting thoughts about, and sometimes you get into disagreements about, is like which brands or people or institutions still matter or still are relevant, and there are right. different kinds of, of influence. And as you, have you, as you guys have grown your own media brand, you've kind of uh, seen sort of the power of like old media, and you, 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 we were talking earlier about how you've discovered kind of new media as well. Do you have a mental model for thinking about? Um, like one disagreement we had recently was on Vanity Fair and like, is Vanity Fair so still relevant or company, media companies like, like, and how do you explain their, their relevance if it, if it's not obvious? Yeah. I, I, this is actually, I think a lot about, uh, I think, uh, institutions, one word, uh, I think the other thing I think about is legitimacy. I actually think one of the best pieces online written in the last few years is Vitalik's piece on, uh, legitimacy is a scarce resource. Uh, if you folks haven't read it, you should definitely go read it regardless of what industry you work on, because what it tries to map out, and I think. When you work in crypto, you really think about this a lot. Is why are some things legitimate and why are some things not perceived legitimate? And 
you know, Vitalik does a great job of breaking down some of the reasons. And uh, we just like, for example, sometimes you have legitimacy just because there's a shelling shelling point. People have agreed upon it for a long period of time. And that's just the way things are. Sometimes there's legitimacy because a bunch of people seize power by force and they decide that's the way things are. Sometimes legitimacy by a process. You may say, well, hey, you know, we set up a council and a committee and they went out for six months. They decided this and that process lends some legitimacy thing. And there are kind of all these factors which go into a very simple question, but a very important one, which is why do we believe and trust the things that we do, right? And I think this whole thing is very important, especially if you're in crypto, because so much of crypto uh, is, you know, deals with what is legitimate? Why do we believe in these things? Where does the idea of uh, trust come from? But I actually think it's kind of lenses to institutions too. Um, and I have a few theory on institutions, which is one is I think uh, institutions tend to be lindy. And I think this maybe ties into uh, our core disagreement. I actually like to think if an institution has been around for a few hundred years or a hundred years, they tend to stay to be around. Uh, and this maybe ties into like another sort of split, which I think some of the East Coast splits was the West Coast uh, frame of mind. Where, and this, of course, it doesn't actually physically map the East or West Coast. But I think in the East, uh, you tend to value institutions more. You tend to value the New York Times or Condé Nast or, you know, um, various kind of like government bodies which existed always. Whereas in the West, I think there's definitely a mentality, the pioneering spirit of let's go build a new, right? Uh, and uh, I actually think a lot of people I work with, you know, the person I work for, like Mark, a lot of, I think a lot of you kind of are very much more in the West. But I actually think that there's real value in lindiness. I think there's real value in something that's been for our, around for 100 years and the trust that comes from that and working with that. So I'm very much a centrist when it comes to the East versus West viewpoint. Which is a roundabout way of saying I'm a subscriber to pretty much every Condé Nast magazine in multiple languages. <laughs> yeah. So wait, to just summarize for Shiram, so you believe in institutions that have been around for a while, so we shouldn't make any more progress. I just want to make sure that I captured your point. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I like I like how you said that. Uh, no, those are that was not my uh, those are not my words. I, I, I just want to ask, how is it working out for you? Like, you know, every every new innovation, invention, everything is like coming from you know what what you call like you know the non institutional side of things, you know, West Coast side of the fence. You literally work here. Um, how do you then trade that off? Like, it, it just it's not as if you know all of these uh, East Coast institutions are like killing it on building new things. So sure, they're legitimate, but they're legitimate because they're old. That's not much. Well, well it kind of depends. I think by the, way, the word institutions and uh, it kind of get muddled. Uh, I just think like when something has been around for a very long period of time and a lot of people trust it, they tend to stay that way. And, uh, and I think often we are in the business of trying to build new things which people trust. So I think it's worth studying why something has become trusted for hundreds of years, right? So, which is why actually I really like the Vitalik post because it talks about what is the path legitimacy. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, one of the topics I've been thinking a lot about is content moderation online. Like, who set, who should say or shouldn't say something? And uh, if you look at the last few years, uh, one interesting new effort uh, from Facebook has been what I think of as the, you know, the Internet Supreme Court, right? Which is this Facebook effort to basically say, uh, look, look at Romero over there, right? Uh, uh, and uh, basically effort to say, hey, you know, we have this, you know, um, kind of quasi-independent body, uh, uh, which will kind of adjudicate decisions. And I think one of the ways Facebook tried to bestow legitimacy on this was they basically said, okay, we're going to try and one, put together a process. Uh, we are going to try and mimic some of the kind of the, the rhythms, the rituals, uh, uh, the institutional framework of something like, say, the Supreme Court. And that's where the legitimacy comes from. 
Now, we could also argue that like, one day, if Mark Zuckerberg really wants to, he could basically destroy that and, you know, create something new. Right? That's always true. But I think that's where the legitimacy of the institution comes from. So I, I, I'm, I'm not, I think I'm not advocating for one versus the other. I just think it's worth studying where legitimacy comes from and why these institutions have it and maybe respect it. It's funny, Shuram, you're such an institutionalist, you know, why aren't you working at Sequoia instead of uh, somebody actually building the future at A16Z, <laughs> for example. Um, but sorry, I'll, I'll leave that little jab aside. So the institutionalist thing, I think, is worth going to a little deeper. I mean, it's not just like an aesthetic choice between what's Lindy and what isn't, right? I, I think this goes unmentioned, but we should mention in the show notes, the piece, the, the key piece to read here is Lana Newhouse's piece and tablet about brokenism versus institution. And we brought it up before for those who are just tuning in. It basically like, and I had this intuition, which I shared with Alana like months ago, with someone that we all know, by the way, who comes from an East Coast institution and and actually got kind of ejected from an East Coast institution. And in my conversation with her, I realized that like at the end of the day, she wasn't actually against this institution. She just wanted to run it, right? She was against this, the way this institution was being run right this second, but she was totally in favor of that institution existing, while my view was just like burned to the ground, right? And I think, it, you know, machine learning has these notion of latent variables. And what a latent variable is, is a variable that's not actually in the model that is kind of upstream of the model that's actually driving the model's reality, and you're not actually modeling it correctly. I think one of the things that you see both on left and right everywhere else is like, do you think there is an institutional center worth preserving? Or do you think, no, it's like nuke and pave, like a code base, and start from nothing? And that's the divide that we're sort of addressing, I think. And okay. I, I think you're trying to keep, you're trying to straddle the fence here, I'm like you always do. But at some point, you have to pick a side when the bullets start flying and say like, yes, actually, we're going to like, forget this, we're building something anew. And to, it's funny because I, I might sound like an extremist. I used to subscribe to Vanity Fair. I used to get a lot of Condé Nast magazines. I, I would love to see the Vanity Fair of like 1994 come back. The Vanity Fair of right now, I think, is largely irrelevant. But the, the thought that we could, we could have better media than we do today and that a, a certain amount of elite gatekeeping is maybe makes it better, I'm, I'm totally willing to concede. I just don't think that the current media elites represent any sort of aristocracy that we should allow to gatekeep. And But then the question is, and this gets to the crypto question, right? It's like, well, do we just give up on institutions altogether? Is it possible to do that? Because at some point you decentralize yourself into Mad Maximus and nobody actually wants to learn that world. Yeah, and so um, I've said a lot there. I'll, I'll just pause. But that's my take on the institutional divide and what comes next. Because I've had this debate with people who are like hardcore institutions, like, okay, dude, and like, then what is the other institution trying to create? Which, of course, is a very good question. But I'll... Yeah, I think, you know, but it, so often I think, uh, you know, sometimes I struggle with these debates because there are a lot of terms and there's a lot of kind of frameworks kind of absorb and people have very different definitions for even what the word elite is or institution is. Uh, I often think it breaks down into something very simple. Uh, who has power and who wants to basically seize it? Like often, I think these debates break into, well, I, I wish I was running things. Uh, and if you look at, like, for example, you know, some of the stuff around like, decentralization, um, I think it's kind of a response to us saying, we don't want these people to basically control the internet. Like, we don't want just a few companies and a few people in lock conference rooms or Zoom meetings to decide who should or shouldn't say Right. And I think that's at the heart of the whole push towards decentralization. And I find those simpler framings much easier to understand than what is an institution versus what is not, who is elite versus what is not. You know, I, I, I think those are a little too abstract for me to kind of like have a sort of a public debate. Or, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I, I go back to the same point of like, sure, it's about power, but it comes from a place of what have you done with it? You've had all this legacy, you've had all this institution and the the brand value and all the right people and the buildings and everything, but you've done nothing with it. And there is no proof that it's actually working. So 
why not just start over and why not try something new and i think that's kind of where the gatekeeping comes into play where it's like well let me tell you the ways do you have any idea how you know story that institution is and how much like what legacy we i'm like don't give a shit like it's not worked yeah. doesn't matter like there are no results to show for it yeah yeah i agree i agree by the way i think what, what one thing i tell people on this point uh is i i think a lot of everyone should really get into crypto technically and understand it even if you don't want to work on it and um, that's perfectly fine but you want to understand it because it gives you a reasoning framework to understand a lot of things in the real world for example like yesterday i think concept like proof of work proof of stake you know what that actually represents very interesting so for example in the validity fair example right i think what is happening is uh you have this concept of hey has somebody kind of done the work over the years uh and are they willing to stake their social capital reputational capital in some form of you know in some shape or form and put together some piece of work now not not in the same dimension as what you know the uh, crypto uh, concepts work but there is a rhythm and a resemblance and i exactly one of the reasons why when you talk to folks in crypto uh, we can start having like a much denser conversation because these concepts are abstracted out and understood much better like mm-hmm. i actually say proof of work and proof of stake is such a profound concept when you start applying it to other parts of life. I have a slightly different frame and, and I'm curious how you guys think about this given that you have your own podcast that's quite successful is that all of this is downstream of attention and attention is actually the, the primary source of legitimacy on the internet and whether you take it as a creator and you have your own audience, Substack, YouTube, whatever, or or you're actually talking about the relevance of the platforms like why is Twitter important, why is Facebook important, it's fundamentally you have X number of eyeballs looking at it for you know Y number of minutes per day. And so I think that the like general like attention is upstream of everything. And and prior to the internet, you had gatekeepers and and a limited number of institutions. Condé Nast mattered in 1984 because the internet didn't exist. So the cost of publishing and distribution of information was a lot higher. So when that goes to zero, you you it's it's, it's like markets. Like you've you've massively increased the amount of liquidity. And and now, given that these markets aren't as siloed you get to a point where now it all matters is how much attention you captured, whether it's through your podcast or platform. And so I, I'm, I'm curious how you think about that, because like to me, when we got in an argument with the the folks from DC, Sagar and Marshall on this, about Chuck Todd. And it's like people at D- DC I'm think Chuck Todd matters. Todd. But but like, we, you know, like what, what does it Does anyone in Silicon Valley actually care about Chuck Todd? Like when you're thinking about building the next product or doing a pull request, do you think about Chuck Todd? No. And, you know, Facebook or Twitter ends up being more disruptive to the political process than whatever interview Chuck Todd is doing. And that's that's a function of attention. So I, I'd, I'd be curious how you guys think about that. Well, I, I think I broadly agree. Uh, I do think that, that different kinds of attention, like, for example, Twitter, uh, I spent a few years working there. One thing I observed Twitter is Twitter is so important because it is, it's kind of the upstream memetic battleground which said so much of the tone, tone downstream. I'll give you an example. I I don't want to kind of share the exact specifics on air. Uh, there was once a story, uh, I think I might have told you some of this off air, but uh, there was once a story which broke out, like some controversy about uh, some popular actor. And I noticed that the same two tweets was mentioned in every version of the story, right? And that's the only reason it caught my And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird because those two tweets were from people who didn't have a lot of followers, who... Um, uh, um, you know, who weren't like, you know, inc- probably is really well known. Um, uh, and so we just, you know, I kind of clicked on a little bit at this analysis. And what I discovered had happened was that morning, uh, you know, the Twitter trending algorithm 
I decided to elevate those two tweets uh, just because of the nature of how it worked. And the trending algorithm, generally, the way it worked was if there's kind of a burst of new tweets around a topic, you would detect it, it would say like, hey, this thing is a trend. But there are so many different variables, like how many tweets are happening, does it detect that, blah, blah. So, uh, and so, uh, but it elevated that. And then uh, there was a human curator who basically took that and said, well, I'm going to make this into a moment because, well, this thing is a trend. It might be a moment. And that was seen by every single editor uh, on the East Coast at like 7 a.m. ET. And by the afternoon, it was now a pure thing in, you know, the zeitgeist. And that was interesting to me because I was like, huh, this kind of this kind of complex adaptive system uh, where no one person had really kind of like tipped the scale. It was just like one sequence of things led to something being injected. And like even today, if you go Google that person, etc., it is like one of the things in their career that they had to uh, uh, deal with. So that I think the part is, I, I think you're absolutely right. But I think there are different kinds of attention. So for example, right, like if you want to sort of be in the tech, political culture uh, or definitely obviously crypto sphere twitter is actually the place to be uh but there are other spheres also like once there are some that are country dependent there are uh, if you want to say example win a bunch of like fashion debates and figure out you know uh what color is going to dominate the runways next year i probably think instagram might be a better place for you uh and i think that just the kind of attention the the memetic landscape for each domain tends to be different uh, which is why, for example, you have some characters uh, who are really popular and can move the needle in one domain, but not another. Like, I think Rogan is a great example. When a lot of us pay a lot of attention to Rogan, he has huge influence in UFC, MMA, comedians, and then broadly into politics. But I don't think, you know, the kind of people who say about influence by watching White Lotus on HBO and are now planning a vacation in Sicily are going to be influenced by Rogan. So I think, yes, but there are different memetic battlegrounds and different, you know, attention pathways. What's on uh, trending topics on Twitter, uh, you know, influences that that battleground. And do we have you to thank for what is uh, w the topics that have been trending and become popular? Given you, you and you know, we're responsible for that. Yep. Uh, well, I think I just like to say anything that is good, I take credit for. Anything <laughs> bad, I, I blame uh, the others I worked with. Uh, trending topics actually a very interesting um, problem. I actually think in some ways it's almost an unsolvable problem because what it is trying to do is it, it is trying to say that. These things matter to humanity. But the challenge with doing that is it's very reflexive. Like, by, that is, by the very nature of elevating something as saying it matters to humanity, you're not going to make it, right? Like, you know, it's like, uh, uh, it's like you know, anything in sort of quantum physics. And so and I think it's almost an unsolved challenge as to how to actually do it cleanly, which is why, like, in any, and by the way, different platforms have different manifestations of this. Um, and sometimes they're not an explicit trending topic, but the different ways to make something bubble up. Um, now I've seen, for example, you know, uh, activist groups who will basically say, hey, I want each of you to write this, this same hashtag or make the same post on TikTok or Instagram at the same time. You're trying to inject something in the memosphere. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think trending topics is a manifestation of like a deeper, interesting phenomenon where you have these memetic fights happening all the time. Like people are trying to meme new words into existence. Our friend Balaji tries to meme a new word into existence like once a night, you know, probably on the phone to Eric. And uh, and how do you make something stick? Like, you know, why, for example, you know, has something like the word Web3 stuck, but others haven't? Uh, uh, yeah, and I, think, and I think Twitter is one manifestation of a memetic battleground, but there are several, several others. And trending is just like, I think, one very visible version of this battleground. Yeah, I mean, should you do away with trending? Uh, I think it's actually a good argument for it. Uh, 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 because I think, you know, one of the things I think trending does is, well, there are, 
I think what I think TikTok. If I remember, if I I, I know okay TikTok, but from what I understand, uh, TikTok trending topics are influence, right? Uh, now we can all debate separately who they're influenced by, but basically <laughs> there are a bunch of human beings who basically say like, hey, you know, I believe X and Y, you know, should matter. Yeah. Uh, now on one hand, I think there's I think there's some real value to that because uh, you know uh, because these algorithms can be so easily gained that uh, you, you know if there was no human curating them. You were, you were letting yourself ga- being gamed by some of the worst actors around. So I think there's actually some real value in that. On the other side, of course, you then have these debates of, well, who are the people who are making these arguments, you know, these putting the thumb on the needle, how are they influencing uh, culture? I actually think it's a very, very hard problem. But I do think that if you're a social media platform, you do have to do some version of setting the tone, and which is, I think, remember, Which means editorialism, curation, whatever yeah. you want well, to call it. Like, here's how I'd frame it, right? And I think Dan has heard some version of this and others heard from this. It's like walking into a restaurant. Right, you walk into a restaurant, right? You walk into the French Laundry, right? You probably are going to be dressed up a little. I don't know how Antonio shows up, but you know, you're probably going to wear at least a dress. I, I like that Freerams like walking into a restaurant example is the French Laundry. You eat there once a week with Gavin Newsom, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Especially I'm, during COVID. I'm, COVID yeah. I'm, I'm, it's an extreme reference example, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, let's say you're walking into like, I don't know, some Hawaiian beach shack, you know, or you're going to watch a sports bar to watch Super Like you can show up in like a hoodie and flip-flops and you can jump around. But it's very apparent immediately when you walk in, like what the social vibe and code and the aesthetic of that place is. And I think one of the you know things which uh, I, I Instagram does, TikTok does, but Twitter historically and many many years ago never really did was establish that vibe. Right? They never I think really told you like, hey, this is you know the French Laundry or this is the salon where you know we're going to like smoke that you know it's like you know all these like tw- uh, you know you have like Isaac Newton hanging out in a salon somewhere in some bunch of wood panelling shelves and smoking a cigar and discussing physics or whatever is it that or is it like are we just going to dunk on each other and it's going to be like WWE like you never said that and I think when you don't do that what happens is you get gamed by different actors so I actually think in some ways you know if you're building a new social product uh, you know you need to set the tone and I don't think it means editorial right it's got everything right it's you know uh, it, how it looks you know uh, who are the what sort of people you bring on how do you act yourself uh, you know uh, you need to kind of set the tone for what the restaurant is going to be so, I mean, I would, I would kind of say, like, the algorithm actually isn't being gamed. It's behaving exactly like it should be, which is whatever gets the most attention will end up getting the most attention. So, in our group chat, so, Trump is always the annoying New York Times liberal, right? And I'm often the annoying, like, European who says, the way Americans do this is completely fucked up and stupid, right? <laughs> so, like, I, I, I'm actually willing to accept a certain amount of academic elitism. For example, I'm reading... Uh, every year, every French person of any education reads the Prix Goncourt, which is like oh the, the, the award-winning like novel God. of that year, which, by the way, is better than anything you're ever going to see in fucking TikTok or Twitter or this fucking sewer popular culture that is American culture. And it's like, guess what? It's just better. Like, it's just smarter. I don't give a fuck what algorithm there is. It's just better. And the French aren't nearly as dumb as the average American consumer. I just want to know, Eric and Dan, is Antony usually as pretentious as he is like right now? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's what gets worse. Oh, okay. I'm, a, I'm a super cultural elitist. That's the, that's the thing. I mean, in some levels, I, I wouldn't say I'm an institutionalist, but I'm definitely an uh, an esthet in the sense that I, I definitely have views about culture. And I think. Most popular, and most popular make- culture is total garbage, basically. Even though, to be clear, I'm obviously being hypocritical in that my entire career has been lived taking human attention and data and turning <laughs> into money. That's literally all I know how to do. But, I, but to be clear, I'm the teetotaler who runs a bar. I don't watch any popular media. I don't play any games. I don't own any screens beyond this one that I work on. I literally don't participate in popular media, and yet all I do is turn me into money. In any case, but still, nonetheless, in a perfect world, I'd be sitting in Provence reading a little textual book, not touching my phone at all, and that's to some degree how the world should run. And I'd be willing to accept some level of elitism. I think in the U.S. it's impossible, and and the institutions <laughs> have become corrupt. 
I will not, however, by the way, the reason why I think that happened, the reason why I think there is decentralization and all this is because the elites have become corrupt and self-serving. If you go back, I recently watched the piano, Gene Campion film from like the 90s that was a massive critical and commercial success. Think, when was the last time there was a film that was a massive critical success and was a popular like commercial success? It's actually quite rare. On the contrary, you have the, the typical screenshot of Rotten Tomatoes in which critics love it and everybody hates it or vice versa. It's never both, right? But it didn't Top used Gun to be Gun that way. Top Culture Gun used to be Ma- very different. Top Gun Maverick. Well, it didn't make the New York Times list. Yeah, it didn't make that, the New York I, Times list? That's exactly, exactly an example of it. That's exactly an example, sure. <laughs> All the others liked it. I think uh, the Times, but it had very high critic scores. All the others liked it. <laughs> Yeah, Anytime Shuram puts a movie recommendation in the chat group, I usually assume that it's going to have a very high critic score and a terrible audience <laughs> score. Exactly. And then he goes, no, guys, it's actually good. <laughs> I've never talked about RRR. Or Black Adam. <laughs> no, nobody wants to talk about Black Adam. Shuram, you all your all your spiel about you know being uh, European, you're sitting in the loft in Soma. You work in tech all your life. Like, it makes no sense to me. It's just this like direct contradiction. Our, our teacher, you know, capitalism makes beasts of us all. We we're all forced, and, you know, tuition bills in SF are sky high. We've all got us. We all have our struggles and crosses to bear. I'm afraid. I think yeah. I think it was Lenin who said heighten the contradictions. And we we have a living example of it with Antonio. You yeah. could yeah. at least for the Provence Zoom background or something. You know? uh, yeah. But, Sure. Uh, I need to give you a subscription to airmail. Have you? Uh, yeah, it, it's sort of the new vanity grants. Yes, exactly. <laughs> sure. You're fascinated by both uh, low culture and high culture. Low culture. We'll get to WWE in a minute. Uh, high culture. Oh, vanity Fair. That you said it's low culture. I've <laughs> been to five WrestleManias. How dare you? <laughs> well, first off, defi- like in our chat, you were saying how you know Rogan. You you said high culture is what gets a cover on Vanity Fair. Low culture, you know, is Rog- Rogan couldn't get a, co- a cover. Jay Z could get a cover. Like, what does that even mean? What? Why does it even matter to be high? Co- is it really just like Jay Z's woke or woke sympathetic, and Rogan isn't? Like, is that the differentiator, or is it something like deeper than that? And yeah, what wh- wh- are you really saying when something is high culture? Well, I think I don't know. I don't know that pick Jay Z as an example because uh, he, I think he has changed over the years. But I do think uh, uh, you know, there's definitely a split. Between uh, you know, one of the tests I have is would this person get on the cover of Vanity Fair? Would this person get invited to the Met Gala? Versus, say, would this person have a large YouTube following? And I think sometimes there is a very interesting intersection of that. For example, one of the most interesting intersections I think recent times is uh, Emma Chamberlain. I don't know whether you mm-hmm. folks follow her. Um, she's one of the top YouTubers around, um, and she went on a break. She now has one of the top podcasts on uh, Spotify, and she's hosting the Met Gala for Vanity Fair, right? So uh, that's actually very interesting. Uh, somebody else also is very interesting in a different way is um, Logan Paul, top YouTuber, now in WWE um, and kind of like making his own uh, uh, direction. Another interesting person I would say is, anyway, there are a bunch of folks who have kind of switched, but I do think like there's generally a split between uh, folks who have mass appeal, mass entertainment, mass uh, mass audiences, right? Uh, and things which have elite approval and this shows up in every domain like for example i spend a lot of time like thinking and writing like fiction and thrillers and stuff uh, there's always been the split between um you know folks with cool hard literary who get like great reviews uh you know who win the booker prize uh who, who use a lot of big complicated words and then there uh, is you know uh john grisham and uh and then there are you know are uh dan brown uh and they sell hundreds of millions of copies i know every once in a while 
right? Somebody crosses over. For example, I think Stephen King is a great example of just because they've been doing it so long and so well uh, that even the literary folks are like, yes, he is so good. Another great example, John Le Carre crosses over. Mm -hmm. But I do think in pretty much every domain, there is a sort of intellectual, artsy, uh, elite aesthetic, and then the mass market aesthetic. In the movie world, for example, which is why you always have, say, the uh, kind of the cliched French author movie, uh, which plays in Cannes to like maybe like 100 people, and then you have the next Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, right? Uh, uh, and you kind of have that in pretty much, I think, maybe in every domain. And what usually fascinates me is one, something crosses over from one world to the other. Uh, so, for example, I think Kim Kardashian is super interesting in this respect because Kim Kardashian came from the world of reality television uh, and social media, which historically, you know, was not a place you associate with high fashion. But if you look at, you know, Kim and she's been amazing at, you know, what she's done, how she's done it herself and her whole family, right? Uh, they're no high culture. Like, you know, uh, think like everything from being a, a well-known activist to, you know, running really large enterprises to... Not just sort of like Kindle everybody. So that's I think a super interesting uh, transition. The other example, I, 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 so I think I pay attention when somebody goes from sort of like mass market product to kind of elite yeah. approval because I don't think it happens too often. Well, yeah, but isn't one, that just, just a, another example of attention, right? Like Kim Kardashian, it, her, her, her business, her product, her, her power is all from attention. It's not like she owns like factories and all this other kind of stuff. She it's just like the fact that she has an Instagram account with two hundred million people following it. It, it's just like purely based on attention. That, that is true, but sometimes I think people don't cross over. Like, for example, in the literary world, uh, like, you know, if you, well, there are a lot of popular authors who, if you least read their interviews, they're always a little bit grumpy that they never win a Booker Prize, right? That they're never going to get like a fantastic, uh, you know, Paris review or New Yorker piece about them. And there's hundreds of millions of uh, books. And I, I, for example, I think of like something like James Patterson, right? Mm. So it's hundreds of millions of books, maybe one of the most successful authors of all time but they never kind of get that literary stamp of credibility. So I think that, I think one way one interesting question, like sometimes people just by virtue of being so popular cross over because even the elite need eyeballs, they need attention, right? That's how they monetize. You need to bring in the young audiences. That's really a factor, but sometimes they don't. And I think it's worth studying why. I think you're trying to say not all attention is the same. Maybe. Some attention is high class, high culture. Some attention is low culture. And, uh, you know, you just cater to one one cohort versus the other and if they're able to transcend that boundary yeah. then it becomes really interesting i don't think the other interesting phenomenon by the way is i have meeting folks in both worlds i found they're often jealous of the others so for example the folks in quote unquote high culture often are they're like hey i want to sign autographs on the streets i want to be out there with 100 billion followers i want to make a lot of money and you know i want to have a movie which shows up an imax and places out of many people pick your metric on the other hand I often talk to people, you know, who have, you know, lots, you know, who have huge success, build products or, you know, written movies, which are played, and they're like, I really want that amazing review. Or I want that one award, which is determined by 10 people. So I kind of find it ironic because I meet people on both sides and everyone kind of wants to be on the other. But one thing, I, I think we're conflating a few things here, Sharam. I think one thing you're, like, the example you cited, like Ray and Stephen King, were actually very dated. So they date from the period in which there used to be, what used to be called middle brow. Middle brow meant that it wasn't fully avant-garde elite. It wasn't, it wouldn't appear in the Cahiers de Cinema reviewed by so-and-so in France that said <laughs> it wasn't some bodice ripper crap that was sold in Walmart. There was the in-between. Like films like Dances with Wolves could win the Best Picture Academy Award, although in retrospect, I think you'd call it like a middle-brow film. It was not avant-garde at the time. And, 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 but right now, that division doesn't exist. True elite culture, I mean, you're calling the Kardashians elite. 
and you're putting them in the same rank as Booker Prize winners, the average Kardashian audience member couldn't read a single page, much less 300, right? Like you're just, it's a, it's a completely different thing. And I think you're correct, but it's purely a metric of attention. And that previous culture used to be about aesthetic value. But again, there, it, it wasn't quite as extreme as you're describing. It wasn't just two camps, right? Stephen King was not some anonymous bodice ripper author. He would be reviewed by the New York Times. Go back and read some of his early novels. They they would get the elite reviews, and it would it was an elite sort of thing. Although it was clearly not, straddling two different worlds. But it's I not that fans are. It's not that Kardashian fans have to like read Booker Prize winning books. It's like it's that Kardashian now represents. Uh, she's a face of Balenciaga and the face of Dolce and Gabbana. And, and Har- that Harvard, is, Harvard, you know. And, exactly, and so I. It doesn't have to like transcend. Uh, different fields and domains. It's just what you represent and which which cohort. I kind of see low culture as like the top of the funnel. There are like lots and lots of people over there, and then a few will like trickle over into the high pa- high fashion or high culture environment. And you have to figure out like which one makes that that bridge. And I think sneakers kind of go from yeah. like low but I to high. Yeah, I actually think this WWE is super interesting because WWE. Yeah, uh, can we talk about wrestling now? Uh, yeah, please. Right? Uh, please, right? Yeah. Uh, I will give up on this. I'm actually wearing a pro wrestling hat. He's been waiting for 45 minutes. For <laughs> yeah, what are you doing for? Right? Like, um, the pro wrestling is super interesting because uh, it's one of the things where it definitely started off as low culture, right? Uh, the whole history of it is carny, as with what they would say, kind of played in these small, uh, you know, school gymnasiums. And the history of it is, you know, all the kind of colorful but shady characters until, you know, the McMahons came around and consolidated a bunch of them. Uh, but then I think by sheer dint of being so popular that it is kind of slowly transcended where you don't have, you know, The Rock or you have John Cena who become these... But Rock's been around for so long in WWE scene. Like, that's not even, you know, it's not like a new thing. Well, but I think, like, he did something which Hulk Hogan could not do, right? Which is, you always have to think, like, that person's a wrestler, right? Uh, uh, They're just a pro wrestler. They're not actually a legitimate movie star. And I think The Rock is now... The one of the most the most legitimate movie star, and so is John Cena, and now Dave Batista, and 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 pro wrestling is now worldwide, right? It's a but global. do you think The Rock will get invited to a Met Gala, which he, seems to be your metric for? I think he has. Uh, he definitely sets fashion. You know, he definitely sets like yeah, the uh, fashion trends, and uh, I, I so I think Rock is very much elite culture. Can, can I just say I, I want to understand the Met Gala invite because um, if I'm a New York real estate developer socialite. And I get invited to the Met Gala for a whole bunch of years, and then I run for president, and then my views don't fit with the the elite <laughs> views, and I don't get invited to the Met Gala. Did, did the first time I get invited to the Met Gala, do I still qualify as late? I was just trying to like map that in my head. You went from high culture to low culture. That's what no, happened. okay, gotcha. Because <laughs> it, it's it's attention plus the right views. Like, what's the difference between LeBron and Kyrie? Kyrie has the wrong views. What's the difference between Kim Kardashian and Kanye? Kanye has the wrong views. Right, right. That was what I'm trying to get at. It's not an aesthetic decision. It's a political one. It has nothing to do with the aesthetics. Trump is just as, is as much of a short-fingled Bulgarian back then as he is now. It's only a question that like he mapped to a different political tribe. And that's why he's suddenly not elite culture. The culture itself is not actually aesthetically better. It's just politically acceptable. Right. And so the elite is woke? Well, I don't know. I, I couldn't hear anything that you all said, so I'm just going to ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is interesting because you know some people when they hear elites they'll say oh these the billionaires are elites so whereas other people say when they hear elites they'll, say, they'll respond like no no it's actually like the journalists and professors and like people who the gatekeepers of of, of culture um yeah. antonio how, how do we make sense of like what is elite or like how do how do we even see with that I, I, all, I, all i know is that i'm not an elite that's all i know i'm definitely not one i think sure i might be one but i'm definitely not one 
Dan, I mean, you guys are also talking, giving Antonio shit about being European, and then you're using the example of the Booker Prize on an American podcast. Like, it's it's the Pulitzer uh-huh. Prize in the U.S., so. <laughs> Bad enough. Bad enough. Bad enough. Uh, Dan, no, Dan, no, yeah. Dan, what's the mental model of, of elite? Like, how do... When people, because people want to deny being elite, because elite is always like bad. So they're like, "I'm not the elite. The billionaires are the elite." Yeah, Sharon's I mean, like, really? I'm elite. Like, I that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I don't know. Like, I I grew up in a non-elite setting. I like went to an elite school. I got an elite uh, like total PMC professional managerial class job. I got a management consulting job out of school. I remember telling my parents that they were going to pay me to consult. And they were like, well, what are you going to consult about? You're, you, you, you just graduated from college. You've never worked in business. Like, why would anyone pay you anything for anything? And it's just, um, so I lived in that world for a while. And then I think moving to Silicon Valley, working in a startup, specifically a crypto startup, and then getting some time outside of Silicon Valley and starting my own company, you can kind of start to see like this kind of farce of, of elitism. It's the professional managerial class is how I would describe it. It's like you derive your status from the credentials and the approval of the other people in power rather than some intrinsic thing that you are accomplishing, right? Like being an entrepreneur, being in the arena is a very, very different thing than, you know, going to the right school, getting the right job, then going and getting the right graduate degree, and then getting the right job after that and getting on boards and all the, all these other kind of things that like check the box. I mean, you look at, look at all the people who are on that uh, Facebook oversight board when, when Shiram's telling us that this is the Supreme Court of the internet. And if you just like Google the Facebook oversight board, you've never heard any of these people. They all have like three degrees and, and they're on the all the right committees. But like that that to me is the elite. It's 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 okay. the the kind of group of people that kind of all go to fancy dinner parties together and and kind of like stroke each other's back around saying, like, oh, look how great I look on paper, when <laughs> most of them have never done anything of actual any significance because they they work within the machine rather than actually building something yeah. new. You, you know, one thing one thing I'll say is uh sometimes I, I think the arguments which use a lot of terminology, elites, PMC, et cetera, uh, you know, become really hard to follow just because there's kind of this, you know, I, I think, by the way, the moment you actually use some of these terms, you're kind of signaling which side you are on the debate. Um, I actually think it's often easier to kind of just make it super simple. Um, and actually, you know, what Arthur and I do on our show, on our podcast is very simple, right? Like, we would not be here if it's not for technology and the internet. We would not be here if it's not for founders, you know, if it's not for, you know, first Microsoft and then a bunch of others. Uh, we're believers in the American dream. We're believers in hard work. We're believers in people having uh, equal opportunity and, you know, working hard and just being optimistic. And, you know, it's such a very simple set of beliefs. And I find it super kind of freeing to just talk about things in that way. Because if somebody kind of opposes that, then you're like, okay, well, then that person has an agenda. Because what do you, you know, if you oppose the notion that, you know, hard work gets you great results, if you oppose the notion that we people should have legitimate art, ra- rational discussions about things, uh, uh, if you oppose the notion that, you know, entrepreneurship and technology have led to good things for humanity, you know, you and I are going to have like a, a real disagreement. And that's awesome, right? But I actually find it a lot more freeing to just keep things simple. Like about 10 years ago, uh, Paul Bukai, uh, the founder of Gmail, wrote a fantastic blog post. Um, which is worth digging up. It's called, uh, uh, I forget the exact title, but it said something about keeping your identity small. small. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, 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 And uh, it's probably up there somewhere on his blog spot still. And I think it made a big resonant tonality because I think over time, you know, as you kind of become part of all these tribes and, you know, these social circles and you're kind of signaling membership, 
it kind of becomes overwhelming, right? You're like, well, what is the current thing? What is the PMC? What is the LE? And then like 25 different phrases on which side of the, you know, which team you play for. Uh, I actually think it's it's very freeing to say like, these are incredibly simple things, right? Uh, I believe in hard work. Uh, for us, I think we believe in technology because tech, without technology, our team and I would not have met. Sure, I would not. Uh, uh, you've been canceled. You, you believe in hard work. Like hard work yeah. is systemically. You know what? That's wrong, right? <laughs> but, because I think, if somebody says, you know what, like I disagree, I'm like, great, right? Then you and I are going to have a disagreement, right? Yeah. But I find it so much easier to deal with like some very atomic, simple uh, concepts. But by the way, I will argue also a lot of times when the discussion happening in this kind of like abstract terminology, they're actually disagreeing about something very fundamental. Like they're actually disagreeing about very simply like, hey, if some kid in India gets a laptop and works hard, do they have a real shot? I think so. I think that kid has a real shot, right? I think that somebody else may disagree. So I, I like to keep things very simple. You, let, let, me, saying, let me keep it. Sorry, jump in. Yeah. Um, you say that, and then you said, you know, the Condé Nast and the New York Times, they hate technology. Like, have you seen how, you know, the tech tech gets covered? Um, you keep saying you love technology. This is what brought us to here, brought us together, immigration, blah. And then you look around and you look at all these institutions that absolutely hate people like you and me. And then you're like, no, you know what? I'm like a really big, but like, I, I don't understand it because, you know, you're just contradicting yourself again. Well, I actually think, I actually think I'm much more just more hopeful, right? Like there are a lot of institutions which have been around for long periods of time that we believe in. Like, for example, we became American citizens uh, a few years ago. Right, we believe in the United States. Right, the United States is incredibly special. Um, it's one of the few countries, maybe the only country, for an idea, which I always find like you know, for just amazing and profound and deep, and you know, uh, in all the ways, probably especially immigrants deeply understand. And uh, that's an institution. And I actually think there is some real value in things which have been around for a long period of time. And just because the people who run it now, or a subsection of the people who uh, run it now, don't like us, I don't. What think... else matters? Uh, well, I think you know either. Sometimes, you know, uh, it means reasoning. Sometimes, if it, but I, I think the answer is not often like, hey, let's throw out this entire institution and everything it represents uh, uh, and then start something anew. Because well, maybe that's an answer, but I, I'm still hopeful for these institutions, some of these institutions be resurrected. Let, 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 me, let, let me ask a simple question. Uh, who has power in these examples? Uh, in the Washington Post? Uh, Arthidas. Arthidas. Uh, no, uh, uh, Jeff, Jeff Bezos or uh, the leading Washington Report, you know, Post reporter? Uh, in New York Times, Salzberger or Nicole Hannah-Jones? At old Twitter, Jack Dorsey or Vijaya or, or whoever? Uh, like, this is the fundamental question. Like, which class of people actually, like, and by power, I mean, like, compel speech, compel actions, uh, determine, you know, what happens? Who calls the shots? Well, you know, this is one of the things which I think can be debated, so I'm not going to weigh in here. But exactly, but but also I think this is one of the reasons why I'm such a you know decentralization maxi because then it becomes very apparent who calls the shots, right? Uh, at least you know what you're signing up for. Like for example, with uh, Twitter, uh, you know, like I think there have been all these debates about the Twitter files and content moderation, and you know, a lot of people can disagree till kingdom come. The one thing which I feel very strongly about uh, is that if you have been impacted by a content moderation action, for example, somebody has shadow banned you, somebody yeah. has like you know put the thumb on the scale and said, you get less algorithmic reach because you tweeted about COVID or for whatever reason, you should know about it, right? So I think like transparency is kind of a first step. So, I mean, these, I think that these are questions can be debated, like what does power mean? And like, you know, you know, Balaji would say something. I know others would have a different point of view. I actually think it's way more interesting to, you know, have systems where it is transparent and open who has power because the others are just like too hard to debate and come to an agreement on a podcast at least. All right, dude, you're such a waffler. It's incredible. 
Like, it, it, I, we, I, I feel we all we almost need to do some version of like Kyler Cohen, underrated, overrated. But instead, it's just like literally, which of these two's heads would you blow off? Like, if push comes to shove, or which of these two would you agree with? Just to like force you to like make a binary decision. I, it's just, I, I, I don't know. Eric. Can we do that? Should we institute a new like underrated, overrated word? But like literally, like which do you drown in a bathroom? It's a little bit too violent. I understand violent language is not. Tyler himself, you know, for all of that, is incredibly Straussian on a bunch yeah, of things. Yeah, he is, he is. He, um, wait, should, should, we, should we explain Straussian to our audience? Because if we're, we're talking about all these frameworks we don't know and like things like that, so sure, do you want to take a shot at that? Be, but be, I'm meta, gonna... be meta and explain it in a Straussian way, just so that it's like super vague. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know what? I actually kind of leave this into WWE because I really want to talk about WWE. No. Right? Which is, okay. I think, you know, the whole concept of Straussian is really about uh, saying something with hidden meanings, right? It's the idea that you see a thing, but you know, uh, but really you're signaling it in a slightly obtuse way. So only maybe the right people can really understand it, but you know, maybe in the surface, it's not really clear. And the reason I want to tell you to professional wrestling is the most profound concept in pro wrestling, and actually something that's helped me in life and my career a lot, is the concept of kayfabe. Uh, which uh, I, I, I think until you might know what kayfabe is, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, I, I was just going to spell it for those who don't know: K A Y F A B E. And I, yeah. I, I agree; it's a central concept in, of the modern era. Yeah. So, in pro wrestling, kayfabe is the construct of reality in which pro wrestling happens, right? Uh, and the amazing thing about kayfabe is, is, is it's neither scripted, uh, and it is neither real. It is something in the middle. It's fluid. It's evolving. And I think it's such a good metaphor for so many things in life where you don't actually, I don't want to kind of get in some existential French philosopher uh, debate here, but when you're talking to somebody or when you're trying to evaluate something, you don't actually know what is real, right? You're getting some sort of a version or a projection of what reality is and you're trying to make sense of it. And that's where pro wrestling operates. And, you know, and so when uh, and the, when pro wrestling is at the very best, they really play with that. Uh, they really play, like for example, you're watching, and you don't get that in any other form of entertainment, when you're watching Star Wars, right, you know it's not real, right? Uh, on the other hand, when you're watching, uh, you know, and let's say a legitimate boxing match or a legitimate sports, it is real, right? Uh, but in pro wrestling, they play with, is this real or not? And that's where the magic is. Like, for example, like, you know, some of the greatest matches in pro wrestling history are when some of the, the wrestlers kind of didn't like each other, right? And their backstage drama, their real backstage drama bleeded, you know, onto the screen. Like, for example, most famously, uh, uh, you know, The Rock, as you mentioned, came back to uh, WWE uh, a, a few years ago, and he had this match with John Cena, and they both didn't like each other at the time because they both trying to be top dog, um, and there was a lot of rumors about how much they hated each other, and they started really going at it, right? And, you know, they, they would really genuinely go at it uh, on screen. And so, and that, you know, created amazing drama because the fans could tell. They could tell that it was real, uh, but it was also fake because they were not really hurting each other, but they also really tried to prove they're better. And in some ways, I think it's such a great metaphor for all reality. So that's one. Plus, I just I think processing is just an art form which everyone should study. Right? You learn so much from uh, watching you, it. You were talking about Straussian. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so <laughs> I think the thing about Straussian is, uh, uh, <laughs> it, it, I think it's. it's it, I, I actually I, lo I love processing and uh, because it's, it's a way of hiding things in plain sight and conveying things which are not actually apparent and. Strassian is some version of that. I just Isn't can't believe that... I mean, that's Twitter, right? Like, kayfabe, Twitter yes. is kayfabe. Like, yeah. It's just, like, not real life. Which is true. I mean, like, there have been a lot of interesting uh, personalities who have directly learned from WWE 
on how to position themselves. Like, you know, for example, like two well-known figures, I would say is one's Floyd Mayweather. So Floyd Mayweather, you know, probably the greatest pound for pound boxer of all time, you know, was kind of, uh, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> what are you picking? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a boxing expert, but I you, there are a bunch of people who would tell you that's a bad take. <laughs> Well, okay, all right. Arguably, debatably, right? You know, uh, but he's definitely up there, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, you know debatably one of the best performer boxers of all time, right? Um, he was actually not super interesting as a character uh, when he started off, but then he in and he was actually very close to WWE people. Like, he actually, you know, he was very close friends with with Lech and a bunch of other folks at WWE, and he invented this character called Floyd Money Mayweather, and he made himself a heel. So, in WWE pro wrestling terms, a heel is a bad guy, a baby face or a face is a good guy. And Mayweather made himself a heel. He's like, you know, and he did everything opposite. He was like, look, I'm only here to make money, right? I don't care about the fans. I'm only here to make money. It's all the things which a heel would say, which like, I don't care about the sport. I don't care about the history. I'm here to like, you know, make a quick buck. And he really fashioned this character. Um, and then people wanted to see him get beat up, right? Uh, and that is so powerful. And if you look at the other famous characters since then, like for example, Conor McGregor or all of other folks in the UFC fighting them have done something similar. The other famous example I would say is, uh, you know, President Trump, okay. uh, you know, who, who, by the way, is a WWE Hall of Famer, by the way, uh, you know, uh, was in a WrestleMania match, I think the main event uh, about uh, over a decade ago. But a lot of, you know, uh, the way he talks in public or the way he communicates are wrestling promos, right? Where you have cleanly defined characters, simple communication, you're setting up a uh, big event. And I know a lot of others have been influenced by uh, pro wrestling. I think know, for I this mean, episode, all the related videos are going to be other <laughs> WWE news. <laughs> Dude, I, I can't believe that, like, unironically, you're saying the best WWE match ever. Like, you missed your calling here as both historian and sportscaster for WWE, dude. I just can't believe that this is sure out here. I, I would say, you know, well, I, I, I mean, let me stop. I, I, no, I think the other thing about WWE is it's okay, let me put this Tyler Cohen style. WWE is massively underrated as a performance art, right? So, for example, like right now, the hottest storyline in WWE uh, is. Uh, Under is getting like what they're gonna be talking about, right? Like, but this is important. Like, this is uh, you know, this is gonna get you a new audience, and you will thank me for it. Okay, so uh, a low culture audience. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, we're, we're gonna make this shit go viral on YouTube. So uh, the most interesting storyline in WWE right now is this guy called Sami Zayn, uh, you know, trying to fit in with this group called the Bloodline. You don't need to care. But the interesting thing about this is it, it is the most hottest interesting, and it is, and both all everyone involved is a bad guy. Right. Hold on, hold on, let me finish. Everyone I'm involved. Just looking at Antonio's face, he's like rolling his eyes so. Hold on, hard. Let, me, let, me, let, me, let me explain why it's interesting, right? You have one quote unquote bad guy trying to fit in to this other group of bad guys, and it is the most interesting thing ever being told right now. It's only it's probably better than any movie right now. Like, and if you watch, if you watch YouTube from like last weekend, you know, uh, where the Royal Rumble happened, you get like about seventy thousand people going crazy, totally crazy for this story, like. In no other form of entertainment could you go see that. So, anyway, so I think it's widely underrated as an art form. Antonio, if hey, you get sure, your... I just out of curiosity, do you personally go to these? Are you in there <laughs> with like the Red State Rednecks and like the fucking tall boy, of course, light yelling and shit? Like, is, is that you? Is that is there like a digging artist room? I'm there pretty often. Like, we went to multiple. Uh, we've been to five. Arthi, yeah. you actually participate. You let you the yep. level. The level of marital luck here is such that you go along yeah. to these WWE events. Wow! So you should you should definitely attend a WrestleMania. It's a really fun. It's really fun. Not for the not for this like bullshit kayfabe nonsense. <laughs> like it's, it's it's not that. Um, it's a spectacle. Like you've never seen a place where it's like ninety thousand people in one place. It's just 
it's it's hard to explain. You should like you should visit. You let's should let's feel this out though, because this is definitely slightly politically fraught. Would you go to a NASCAR race, for example? Uh, I no, because I'm just starting. Formula I, yeah, Formula One. He's <laughs> definitely going. He's uh-huh, like, yeah, uh-huh. it's on Netflix. Oh, High culture. That's the right type of car, not the wrong type <laughs> of car. I say, got it. I think it's kind of depends. It kind of depends on like I grew up watching pro wrestling. I know the history. I know the characters. Same I know with, the storyline. Same, same with F one. I watched Sh- Michael Schumacher and Mika Hakkinen, and you know, uh, it's just one of these things where once you grow up with it, it doesn't really matter what kind of culture it just appeals to you. We we are European by colonization. <laughs> We're not European pretentious people like uh, Antonio. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you <laughs> a I didn't. I, we're yes. only an hour in. We finally got to the Indian colonization topics. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so I, 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 again, one so I'm going to jump on a Zoom. See you guys later. I'm <laughs> out of here. I'm like, kitchen, hang up. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you one more. Right? So, you know, you both, we went to WrestleMania in New Orleans. I think this is 2014, 2015. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is, for anybody who's a WWE fan, this is when The Undertaker streak ended. So, mm-hmm. The Undertaker, kind of this legendary WWE wrestler, had this streak where he had won every single match at WrestleMania until this year. And I swear, we were there. Um, we had 100,000 people in almost everyone cried, right? Like, and including me, right? Like, because it was so powerful a moment right there to watch that. Uh, and every wrestling fan here is going, I know exactly what he's talking about. And then they're going to go to YouTube, recommend they're going to watch that moment again. Uh, okay. like, can, can you explain this to me? So doesn't like corporate make the storyline? Like they're like, okay, Undertaker, you keep winning every week. And then this is the year we are going to now have him not win. No, Dan, like, you can't say that. That's it. It's not real. It's not fake. It's somewhere in between. Did you not? Just get Dude, David, don't tell him. He doesn't know Santa Claus doesn't exist. It's like telling all the kids Santa Claus doesn't exist. This is bad news. Yeah. Well, uh, whether you know, so that is a great question, right? So, we should probably spend entire episode talking about WWE. So much point. No. No. Oh my God. The yeah. least interesting debate about WWE is whether it is scripted or not, um, because we all watch, you know, popular forms of entertainment. Which are absolutely and which Wait, except Antonio, uh, except Antonio, which moves us uh, emotionally. So that's absolutely irrelevant. The mm-hmm. thing that's interesting about WWE is how they do it. Like first of all, it is live. It is happening in a you know in a physical setting with a lot of fans. So and you interact. It's kind of like stand-up comedy or theater. You kind of interact with it. It's slightly uncontrolled that way. There's a physicality to it, right? There are real human beings or really huge human beings jumping up, taking um big risks, and there's a lot of deep history. For example, in this particular case, the Undertaker. Is somebody who everyone had grown up with for 20 years, right? 21 years. They knew this person. They had been there in their childhood. He could never lose until he did, right? I, that may be scripted, but it is basically the moment everyone's childhood ended, like because they were like, oh my God, like we've now taken away something that I can never get back. And there's such power to that, which is totally irrelevant to whether it's scripted or not. I'll give, you, I'll give you the point that if anyone watching Game of Thrones and WrestleMania, it's the same shit. One's live, one's not. And you know, it's it's corporates <laughs> deciding what the the plot is. I, I'm I'm, I'm kind of sorry that Eric, you have to like cut half the episode <laughs> now. It's like you don't have a lot of material, so we can like reshoot this whole thing. No, I, I think loss of innocence moments are 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 fascinating. I want to shift gears here a little bit. Uh, a few weeks ago, Lex Fridman put up a book list um, that was reminiscent of like a high school AP book list. Um, some classics for sure. And he got absolutely roasted, got destroyed. And just the Lex Friedman phenomenon has been coming to a head for a while. And I'm curious to get perspective on it. Here's my, I find it fascinating that he is both um, hated by the, the far left and the far right, or even just like people on the left and people on the right. But also he, he, it's less that he's like somewhere in the middle. It's, it's more that I think there's like this 
big uh, kind of fight between like earnest Twitter and shitposting Twitter. And, and Lex is as earnest as they come. And he doesn't quite understand the vitriol, like the, the source of, of the vitriol. And so let's just talk about the Lex Fridman phenomenon. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I would say, I feel so strongly about this. And it actually ties back to the theme about, you know, Lex is doing something very simple. He's saying, I'm going to be curious. I'm going to be kind. I care about, you know, spreading love and peace and all those uh, good things. And I'd love that he comes from a place of, you know, sincerity. You know, some people may call it naivete, but I, I just absolutely love that because it is so simple, right? And I wish Twitter was full of that, uh, uh, but it often sadly isn't. And that book list, right, I love that he put it out there because the truth is, number one, a lot of people, including a lot of people who dunked on him, had not read those books, okay? Let's be honest, right? Uh, either, number two is often when you read books, it is very different when you read them in your teen years yeah. versus when you read them, you know, uh, later. Like, for example, I was telling uh, our folks in our chat group that day, uh, Christopher Lee, who plays uh, Saruman in the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, used to read Lord of the Rings, the entire book, every single year, right, into his, like, 70s. Um, and you say every single time he read it, he had, like, a slightly different perspective uh, just because your life experiences change. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with reading those books uh, later. And I think there's something, you know, beautiful about saying, like, hey, uh, I haven't done this before. Uh, I'm just going to try and do something which a lot of other people have. So I'm very much in the be sincere, uh, be kind uh, school of thought, uh, as opposed to the I'm going to quote tweet dunk on someone for a few likes school of thought. Okay, can I unleash my Lex Friedman bear case spiel now that you've given the bull case? Sure. And, and the book thing, actually, I, I don't feel that's wrong about because books are good and whatever. Like, I, yeah, whatever. I don't think it's that big a deal. Um, Lex Freeman, I think I'm even in a group with him. And, and again, I, you know, I'm on the side of makers and creators and whatnot. So I don't like being super negative on people who put things out there. You know, look, this is social media. If you like him, tune in. If you don't, don't, whatever. What I've heard often, what I'm hearing you say, Shuram, to use DC language, right, is that it's he's bringing the sincerity to the form, open mindedness. And a lot of, I don't, you didn't say this just now, but people we know said, well, you know, he just shuts up and lets the, the guests speak, right? And that's also often the, the bull case for, for, um, Rogan is also the same thing. It's like, okay, but like, if our media has fallen so low that simply not imposing some dumbass narrative is already said to you among the top 1% of podcasters, like, if you look at somebody like Tyler Cohen or William F. Buckley back in the firing line days, right? Would you say that Tyler Cohen is adding something to the conversation by Tyler Cohen? What I've always found fascinating about him is that he's such a polymath. His intellect is so wide ranging from, once again, French literature to Indian this, to cuisine to whatever. And he's actually able to engage with some of the leading lights in the world at their level and and actually have it be a productive Socratic sort of dialogue. And to me, that's what makes Tyler amazing. And like, okay, sure, not sitting there and like saying something stupid to a smart guy, I guess is a plus. But if, if literally all you bring to the table is the ability to like wrangle these high and death and like just shut up and let them talk, like, okay, but I don't know. I think you're missing something. And I think there is... We're setting the bar too low by saying, yeah, just open-mindedness and earnestness on Twitter, that's enough to be like a media phenomenon. I think I would prefer a Tyler Cohen sort of figure as like the but, premier interviewer. I love, I love Tyler. I think he's amazing. But I would say what he just said is actually one of the more pretentious, snobbish things to say, which is to say like, hey, you know what? I deem Lex, who's listened to by millions of people, I think it's like 1.5 or whatever million subs on YouTube, you know, let's say millions of people, that their taste in that product is somehow beneath my cultural bar. Yes, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a cultural leader. We made it clear before. Yes, you're, you're, <laughs> you're citing the attention metric 
And like <laughs> at the end of the day, it's like sushi fest, right? They're rated like nothing actually happens in the sushi. I know we're deviating a little bit. It's just the ability to actually like find the best prime material. Lex is great at getting amazing guests, right? I agree with you, uh, right? But I, I just don't think he's adding as much to the conversation as somebody else well, like Alec Cohen. Yes, he's doing something very interesting. Um, and uh, so uh, I'll give you another example. Uh, so uh, John Lecare, uh, this is one of my favorite stories I tell you all the time. You know, John Lecare hated the press. He hated doing press. He hated doing interviews. He was a very complex character. He had like these, you know, uh, he had this. He was a spy. He had this kind of very challenging dad. He had like affairs. He was a very complicated figure, and he hated doing the press. And but in in, in the late nineties or the early 90s, rather, he was kind of forced to do an interview on French TV by this guy named Bernard Pivot, who kind of like hosts kind of the version of late-night talk show with Leno or something in France. And uh, Le Carre was like petrified. He was like, I'm going to go on there. I'm going to hate it because I don't speak French very well, blah, blah, blah. But he goes on, and in the first 30 seconds, right, he says, it's the most amazing interview experience I've ever had. And he, Pivot, got the best version of me. And the reason he did that, and Le Carre says a lot better than I can, he says, it because Pivot basically said, made him feel safe. He made him feel like, oh, this is going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to look good. So I actually reject the idea that all Lex does is listen. I think what Lex is doing is a conversation is such a delicate thing, right? It is something which exists only at one point in time between one set of people. There's a delicate energy uh, to it. What Lex is creating is like a space where people feel they can talk and open up. So he is actually getting different content out of them then when with a different kind of a host where you're like, okay, I'm going to spar with this person, right? And you win some points, I win some points, but I'm sparring. That's very different from, say, Howard Stern. When somebody goes on Howard Stern, right, he's being psychoanalyzed. Howard Stern, within 30 seconds, he's going to be like, talk to me about your dad. Did that really mess you up? Is that why you're here? And he's going to tell his Howard Stern voice and the radio booth. And that's going to open you up. So, you know, I actually think the question to ask is, are we getting interesting new discourse and content into just zeitgeist? And with Lex, I think just like Stern or just like Larry King, uh, you're getting new thoughts. So, Larry King is a great example, right? Uh, you know, he, he would say he actually was famously underprepared for every interview. He would actually often go in knowing nothing about the person he was going to interview because his whole stick was, I want to have the New Yorker on the street resonate with my guest. So I'm just going to go in and be like, who are you? Tell us what you do, right? And there was kind of an art to that too. And the guest got something different from him. So A, I would say there is real value because Lex creates content that nobody else can get. I'll give you an example. Go watch Lex interview Stephen Wolfram, right? Now, Stephen Wolfram is a genius uh, and, you know, uh, a very famous, complicated character, obviously. And if you watch Lex talk to him and get somewhere, Lex gets something out of him in, in this interview that nobody else has ever gotten. And trust me, I watch a lot of Wolfram stuff. Um, and there are many other guests I could go through where Lex gets something out of them that nobody else ever, ever does. And I think there is some real value in being like, oh, this person who has something to contribute or something to say is saying something they will say to no one else just because of the the why, the environment, the space. But also for Lex coming from a place of curiosity. Like yeah. Lex is genuinely curious about asking these set of questions. He's not just pandering to the guest. You can tell that he just wants to know. He just wants to be in the place where it's like, I want to learn. Tell me. Yeah, I also. The reason I feel very strongly about this is because we get this criticism a lot, right? We get this criticism <laughs> often from journalists being like, "Oh, you folks in the Good Time Show should push back on your guests, right? Why are you not holding, you know, uh, uh, speaking truth to power or holding feet to it?" And my point is that, like, well, <laughs> my point first of all is not every you needs to be the same, right? Not everything needs to be sixty minutes. So there is a place for Jimmy Fallon. There is a place for sixty minutes. There is a place for, uh, you know, 
back, you know, when he was doing the show, Charlie Rose, if there's a different <laughs> kind of thing that can happen. Right? No, the Rogan. Second... You're not mentioning <laughs> Rogan, Cheryl. I'm shocked. <laughs> right? Like, you know, or Alex Cooper, right? Who I think is, uh, in some ways, the female Rogan. And that's one. The other part of it is when you put the guests at ease, right? You're getting something fundamentally different out of them. And I, by the way, I also think there's a little bit of an ego thing here, right? Which is what Lex is actually really doing is he's setting his ego aside. He's saying, I'm not here to win intellectual points. I'm not here to show you like how many books I've read, how smart. And by the way, one of the things about Lex is he has read a lot of those books already that he had on his list. Because if you listen to one of his other interviews, he actually mentioned a lot of that. He's learned a lot of that. He's saying, I'm not here to win intellectual brownie points. I'm here to purely listen, which I think is a really hard thing for hosts to do, which exactly set their ego aside. Uh, and can I use a processing term? No. Okay. Yes. Processing term is to not get themselves over, which is a processing term for trying to no. get yourself over. Now he's going to be like, do you know what that means? No, it doesn't matter. Let me tell you what it is anyway. Uh, Shriram, why does Huberman work? Oh, uh, huge fan. Uh, I think there's a bunch of things that are going on, right? For some of it is, I would say, the time we live in. So Huberman really blew up during uh, COVID. COVID. And a lot of people, and even Lex, right? People are at home. A lot of free time, engaging in that content, you know, kind of in this weird psychological space. But Huberman, I think, is a very, very unique blend of a human being um, and uh, in a few ways. Number one, he has ab absolute impeccable academic credentials, right? He has done the work. He has the degrees. You can see it when he just from the way he talks. Number two, his, he brings a lot of rigor to his work, which is he talks about, you know, the way he talks about the science. He's never saying something because he thinks it, right? He's like going to quote like five different papers. But I think the really interesting thing about Huberman uh, and I think you would know that I say this, is his past, right? Mm -hmm. And you'll see him talk about it from time to time, that he grew up in a very, you know, gritty neighborhood. He had a dark he past. He had a too. dark past in his teens, and he had his whole skateboarding era, and a lot of people who around him did not make it. And he's also a little older, right? He's in his mid-40s. So he has kind of a weight where he brings a certain life experience to it. Um, and so I think the combination of his rigor, his kindness, his gener but also the fact that He's someone who's definitely overcome a lot of issues, but doesn't want to talk about it. We kind of, but you can see it. And he's little has a bunch of life experience to, you know, to show for it. And I think it's such a unique. I also think the other thing is, uh, he has good guests, like the super tactics, right? The good guests, but is able to translate um, what the guests are saying in a form that is mass consumable. Um, yeah. I think uh, they're keeping it really simple, keeping it really relatable. And he, he's very consistent about what he says, right? Like his basic belief, science should be free or is as close to free as possible. Those scientific learning should be available to everyone. And he's like the conduit, the middleman to make it happen. And so every research paper he talks about, every academic he interviews is all through that one lens. I mean, I think Adi said something which is very profound, which is uh, he doesn't dumb it down too. Yeah. Um, and, like, and he talks about it, which is he's never going to, you know, try and do the, you know, uh, tell, Let me, me tell, you. tell me like I'm five. He's going to, you know, use the complicated words with multiple syllables in them and mention the papers. And he's going to expect you to do the work and people go do the work. So, so here's my issue with him because he falls in the same, like he's in the Tim Ferriss camp and, and things like that. It, it's, it's appealing to a certain male between ages of X and Y. And well, it, it's like the science is the science, but we also know like things need to replicate and like there's a lot of conflicting information. And so it's like the entire time I lived in San Francisco, <laughs> there was some new book or trend that was the science. Like what was the, 
what was the sleep book that everyone was talking about for a while that the guy did all the podcasts he's from stanford matthew walker and, and then it's like everyone was like oh my god i sleep eight hours a night or i sleep eight and a half hours a night and then you have your r rings and quantified self stuff and there's a certain level of it where it it's a to me it's a signaling thing it's like you tell people that you listen to the huberman podcast when you're going to have brunch with your friends as a signaling thing of like i'm interested in making myself healthy and and I, I'm, I have no opinion on the scientific stuff, I, like the data, like I haven't looked at it. Like I'm, I'm not an expert on any of that stuff, but that that's my general issue is I, I find it very hard to reason about that because it just sounds really official sounding and you can throw a lot of scientific words that you probably aren't going to dig into. And I realize like we could be talking about AI or crypto or something where the, the audience member doesn't have the same level of expertise. And so we sound like we know what we're talking about. But I, I, I'm just like deeply skeptical on, on any of that stuff, especially as it gets towards like nutrition and well-being. What is the alternative then? Because the alternative is sort of, you know, ignore uh, people trying to kind of push the boundaries of research or trying to understand, you know, one of the latest studies. So they, they should but, keep doing the research, but Lindy is is the the counter to all that stuff where it's just like, okay, that, like what, what's been working for a really long time? Uh, eat meat and lift, lift, lift uh, heavy weights. In the sun, and, yeah. Strong, no, but strong, I, 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 strong I'm not a carnivore, <laughs> Maxi, but like, yeah, I, I think indeed there's like the Mediterranean <laughs> diet. Like, there is something in that that it's like, hmm, all these people seem to live into their 80s. Maybe, maybe you know, eating like this is is probably a good thing. I think what Dan's putting his finger on is that there's a pseudo religion around the measure itself. I mean, specifically with Hooverman with the business of the alcohol thing, right? It's part of it. I and again, I, I'm not a huge fan, and I'm certainly not versed in the science at all. But he's like. Mr. Anti-Alcohol, there's this whole anti-alcohol trend. Now it's like, dude, like if it's really as toxic as you say, you're going to have to explain something like 4,000 years of human history to me, <laughs> at least in the West and the Middle East. Everything from a Passover Seder that requires you drinking four glasses of wine to a Shabbat Kedusha has one glass of wine. Like if it's really as toxic and terrible as it is, how is it, again, being the Europhile that Spain has a life expectancy, something like 10 plus years longer than the US, and the most wine-soaked regions of the world has one of the longest longevity in the world. Like again, it, it's just... I think what I viscerally object to is what Dan viscerally objecting to is that living as this atomized individual who's constantly micro-optimizing something and looks at lifestyle patterns, like some sort of bizarre, you know, quantitative, it's also why I hate effective algorithm, by the way, that, that's something for a different show, in which you're living as this atomized individual outside of any sort of cultural social matrix, making choices yeah. about your life or about which you feel very smug. And that's what I think ticks me off about it. Because it's always but, another current thing, as it were. I, I, I agree on the over-quantification atomization, like, you know, eat, sleep, diet, gets you most of it. I will say, though, if you listen to the alcohol episode, you know, the Huberman kind of has, like, 25 different times where he says he's only talking about the current state of research on peop uh, the impact alcohol has to your body over some small period of time. He's not talking about it as a social lubricant. He's not talking about all the other kind of things it engenders. It, he's not talking about, like, you know, the people who drink alcohol, what else you may start to look. It's a very, very small thing. And he goes to great lengths to kind of like put those kind of asterisks in there. I find I think what a lot of people react to is I think they react strongly because it's kind of a rejection of their lifestyle. And that, that's why they really reject strongly because he's not saying don't drink. He actually tries so hard to tell people in the episode, it's, I'm not telling you to not have a drink of wine. I'm just saying that there is no science that a, a, a glass of wine is good for you. So I, I, I want to be clear. I actually think what he's doing and and you know scientific research and all that that that's it's a good thing we're moving forward 
what I don't like is the people who listen to the podcast and then tell me that they listen to the podcast and how great that they are, that they're now not doing this thing that they heard on the Andrew Hoopman podcast. No, it's no like, I get it. I get it. I mean, yeah. I, that's that's the thing I was trying to piece apart. Like, you don't seem to have objection to the content itself. And if you've like listened to his podcast, like you, I, I really like the scientific rigor. Um, I, I also like the fact that he just linked to all the papers. He's like, have at it. Like, this is kind of what it says. This is like a test with like thousand people. This is what it looks like. And he kind of breaks it out and like keeps it open. I, I really like that. But I think what you are, what you don't like is just people virtue signaling by saying that they listen to this episode or they're following a specific rigorous lifestyle no. change or diet but based da- on humans. But, uh, but damn, people- so I want to ask you each of you one thing. What is something when they do that people absolutely can't shut up about? Morning sunlight. Oh, that's me. <laughs> it used to be CrossFit and veganism, but I feel like we might have moved on from that. Like, what is the thing that you absolutely have to tell people about at brunch? I don't go to brunch, so. <laughs> Dan doesn't go to anything. Conflict is Except we're having brunch. Sure, the, we're having brunch tomorrow, so that I'm Dan, breaking my own rules. Uh, Dan, the cool <laughs> kids are on Farcaster. You know, Farcaster is a signal. You know, the cool kids, uh, moment of Zen is the cool uh, all, all in. So in your... Uh, in your yep, want to brunch. Actually, <laughs> Huberman is very popular on Farcaster. So, like, I, I like again, I, I you know, people are going to have what their own preferences are. I, I think the other thing that most recently is like Brian Johnson, the you know the oh, yeah. brain tree guy and he did the blueprint thing. And I actually know someone who went and spent time with him like before this was even announced. And I mean, the the routine just sounds like crazy. Yeah. And 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 then this just, I mean, it's more philosophical. It's like okay, so yeah, you've re- reversed aging. You're doing all this stuff. And and by the way, the fact that he open sourced it and and like maybe other people are gonna go do scientific research as a result of him spending a million dollars, power to him, right? Like that maybe maybe move nutrition science forward in, in some categories as a result. But the like what are you optimizing for? So it's like you get five more extra years later, but like you basically never had a like a bowl of ice cream for the last thirty. Like right. ROI <laughs> doesn't seem like the right calculus there. It's like the GS elevator jug, right? Like if you cut alcohol from your diet, you don't actually live longer. It just feels longer, right? Like that's the, <laughs> that's kind of a joke, right? It's like it's like the same life extension. Well, I have a general problem with life extension. People extending your life for what? I mean, is it just a morbid fear of death, which I think is actually what it is? And typically, how you deal with that is through religion or other forms of immortality projects. Like, what are they trying to optimize around this whole life thing? Is it people just want to die? That you know, that's just it. Like, who who wants to be like I'm excited about death? Can I, can I guess it though? I would say historically though, I have a lot of respect for people who kind of done nutrition things that have sounded crazy, but have now become work accept practice. Like for example, there was a time when intermittent fasting was considered crazy, but now like everyone, you know, all the top athletes do it. Uh, there was a time when you know. Well, lack- hold on, but but this is a great example of Lindy. Like you're like most right. Europeans don't eat breakfast, and then it's yeah, like Americans it, invented breakfast and they got rid of breakfast, and I right. think they discovered this, and it's like no, most people in the world just don't yeah, eat breakfast. Right. It's a good way. No, actually, I'll reject that because there are some things which are lindy which are bad. Uh, for example, the idea of uh, low sleep. Like, I think there was kind of a, we went through several decades where it was kind of a, considered a sign of hard work that if you slept less, like nobody would go to work, you know, uh, nobody could say, you know what, I actually had eight hours of sleep and, you know, they would be proud of it. That was not a thing. Um, and But then now, you know, you see LeBron James and he's talking about, I mean, he's, he, he's playing with people who are sons of people he has played with and he talks about sleep being one of the biggest factors. And so I think some of those has changed. Um, I, 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 so I have big respect in people kind of pushing the boundaries, even if something seems empty. I'll give you another example. Um, I'm very suspect of things where 
It is like put in more sort of physical effort, longer, grid it out, uh, and things will work out better. Like for example, basketball, which we follow closely, for me, me, over decades, the idea that you could rest a player was considered terrible, right? Like, you know, uh, and people get into real trouble for, you know, even, and they would kind of do it sneakily and they'd fake an injury. But the idea that you rest a player because, you know, they wouldn't be so injury prone because you actually need them for the playoffs. Uh, and Eric would know this, was considered just awful against the spirit of the game. But no, every team does it, right? It's the only way because you know that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you go play every 82 games. It actually matters even the playoffs and a lot of people just take breaks, right? And they manage and so that, that's how you, you become. So I actually think there is value to kind of people pushing the boundaries, even in ways that they get made fun of or unpopular. Yeah. But the, the difference there is that new, new, the human body is like a much more complex system beyond our ability to, to like evaluate it. And so thus Lindy... Um, you know, has more credence there, whereas basketball is a much more constrained, scoped game, and thus it's easier to experiment, track experiments, um, and and you know. Okay, you... Let me say, let's say you went to late '90s, you know, um, our early '90s, but you know, the Detroit Pistons, you know, the bad boys yeah. are running amok, and you say, "Hey, I'm from the future, and uh, you, by the way, your player should be taking a nap in the day, sleeping ten hours a night, and by the way, your best player should only be playing like sixty games, right? Like, what would happen to you? Yeah, and shoot threes. I mean, <laughs> it's just I mean, like that isn't. But that isn't Lindy. Sorry, the 90s, you're, you're so stuck in the present moment, says the cultural leaders, right? That's not Lindy. I think what Dan's referring to, intermittent fasting, guess what? It's called Yom Kippur in Judaism, right? Like you just stop eating for a day. Or, oh, I need to unplug from the internet. We got a name for that too. Happens every Saturday, right? There's a lot of things that are being reinvented or, oh, let's go into the desert and roll around this thing and we all go once and we call it Burning Man. You know, I think someone invented that one too. There's a lot of things here that people are like reinventing and it's like, bro, yeah, I was, like I got news for you. Arti <laughs> and I were talking before we came to podcast, like how long before Antonio brings up something from Judaism, right? Like how long is it going to be podcast? Every episode. Antonio, Judaism, you, WrestleMania. So like we we all have our, our you know, tropes that we go back to. But, but let, the, the thing that I think I don't like about the general Silicon Valley tech culture, and I'm very much part of it, is the a la carte belief system. Of like, oh, I'm going to pull a little bit from here, a little bit from here, a little bit from here. Okay, this is me. I'm the individual. And it just is it's, it's like not consistent. <laughs> like it, 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 it's like the max weird, you know, Heinrich, like you, you stand just for a bunch of beliefs that you got basically via Twitter and podcasts. Right. And so, and, and I'm not, I'm not claiming like I'm, I have some superiority of like, I, I have everything figured out. But like, I think what I am going through personally over the last few years is a rejection of this a la cardism. And, you know, we brought this up in one of the episodes. I think one of the appeals of religion to me, uh, as not someone who's, I'm not going to church every week or anything, but that the idea that like, there is actually something connected that has a lot of history behind it. And you can, you can choose how much you want to dial into the beliefs. I think that there's something there that is appealing just because I'm surrounded by all of the, you know, the latest, like, Oh, have you seen the Brian Johnson blueprint thing? Have you have you changed to nutty pudding and like removed all these things from your from your diet? It just it, it uh, it's actually just not a pleasant way to live. And I can I maybe kind of this all the way back to the beginning and maybe this is a good note to end yes. this up, which is um what the nature of people who come to Silicon Valley are not people who, you know, respect thousands of years of history. They want to build new things. They're optimizing, they're seeking, uh, they're building a new that's what makes this place magical. So Dan, I would argue that in some ways you're looking for Lindy institutions. You're looking for things which have, you know, which to the test of time. And the nature of this place is a lot of people are like, I don't like the old. I'm going to go best and I'm going to go build the new. And those things are often in conflict. 
and they do it in every part of their lives. They don't, you know, um, the, so that's a good place to, to wrap, but, but w- w- in closing, sure. I just want to ask you, you know, you were, uh, famously inner circle, uh, at Twitter o- over the transition over the past few months. And, um, you were really close, you know, it was just a handful of, of people, um, who were really making it happen. You, you were one of them. And I'm, I'm just curious, what was it like to work for Jason Calacanis? Uh, uh, I, I, I will reveal that on the All In podcast someday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Arthi Shriram, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You have to come back on at some point. Uh, if we're not all canceled from it, this has been great. Thank you for having us. And kids, watch WWE. Go to WrestleMania. <laughs> Excellent. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.